The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I want to get a sense of who is actually in the room. I haven't been to your sangha for a really long time, and I'm going to be talking a lot about sangha tonight. And it just occurred to me as I was sitting here that I don't really know any of you. Well, there's a few of you here that are familiar faces. Um, And I'd like to just get a sense of who's here. So how many of you are brand new to meditation? Maybe you've just started in the last few months. Okay, great. How many of you are considering, consider yourselves beginners? Maybe you're not brand new to it, but uh, somewhat new. Okay, great. How many of you have been at this for a really long time? <laughs> a lot of you. Oh, that's great. Um, any of you sit long retreats, uh, so a week or more? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, How many of you are from Redwood City or one of the nearby? Okay. Okay, so most of you. And then just one more question. How many of you have traveled into this sangha to be part of this sangha? Great. Wonderful. So... What I'd like to talk to you about or discuss with you um, about tonight is the three refuges. And as I was preparing for this talk, I asked uh, myself a few questions just to get in touch with what this means to take refuge. And as I began to ask myself, that question, these images started coming to mind of being a kid in uh, the California hills playing outside most of the time and finding these little alcoves and and, uh, bushes and trees that we used to make forts under. (laughs) Anyone big fort makers when you were kids? (laughs) Yeah. And I remember we would play in these forts all day, almost every day, until we were called back in for dinner. And it didn't matter if it was raining or uh, a beautiful sunny day. It just didn't matter. We were out playing in these forts and in the trees. And I have this really distinct memory of it raining one, one day and going out despite it and finding myself under this grouping of trees uh, that was probably one of these forts, and having this sense of real protection from the weather, this real, um, well, it was a refuge for me at the time. That wasn't a vocabulary word for me then, but I just remember these feelings of ease, of safety, um, being able to just relax and enjoy being there. There was nothing expected of me. There was nothing to worry about. There was a protection there. And so I'd like you to take a moment and just think of 
what a refuge is for you, just in general. Maybe an image pops in your mind. Maybe it's something that's familiar now, these days. Maybe it's something that you remember from when you were a kid. And this might not be an easy question for some of you. Maybe there aren't many refuges for you right now in your life. Maybe you can have a sense of what a refuge is for you or how that's felt for you in your life. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's an activity. And I ask this because I'd like us to kind of go through this exploration this evening, not in an intellectual, heady sort of way, but actually really getting in touch uh, with our hearts with the feeling of refuge and just its importance and its support. Because Buddhism, as some of you may know, provides uh, a set of refuges for us. And these are the Buddha, the Sangha, and the Dharma. And so one of the questions I was asking myself was an obvious one to answer. It was pretty easy to answer. But I think a question I'm not sure I've really asked myself before, and that is, well, why do we need those refuges when we have this practice? Which in itself, uh, I think in many ways, can be a refuge. This practice which is really quite simple. Um, I love Pema Chodron's uh, way of explaining what it is that we're doing here. (laughs) And that is simply to train ourselves how to stay. Over and over and over again, we're training ourselves to simply stay with what is, whatever that is. Training ourselves to stay. Because we have this great tendency to push away what is in our experience or uh, wish that it was different. We actually don't have a lot of tolerance to be with what is. We find lots of ways to distract ourselves, make excuses for ourselves on why we can't stay with what's here. A lot of it's unconscious. The more we practice, it starts to unveil those layers of habit, and so they become more and more conscious, but we do them anyway, right? <laughs> so she describes it as a puppy. So we're, we're like this puppy that we're training to stay. You know, So the puppy's here, and you say stay, and of course the first thing it does is run away, and or you know goes off and play or jumps up on you or whatever it does and you say no 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 stay and it does it again and so you start going in this this back and forth of trying to teach this puppy to stay so we recognize that in ourselves in our own habits and just our humanness not wanting to really stay with what is but we know As we practice, we begin to recognize that when we do stay, when we are able to be with what is, 
whether it's the 10,000 joys or the 10,000 sorrows, if we can be with it and know it, then there is a truth that is understood. There is an opening to freedom. And that's what keeps bringing us back. Some of you who haven't been practicing for very long, that might not be actually so true yet. Um, It might be that this just really feels good, which is great. But maybe you've gotten the sense through different Dharma talks and by coming here to IMC that there's more to this than just feeling good. Because as we practice, as we start to recognize our puppy dog habits, what we start to see is that even though this is a really simple practice, we're really, these Dharma talks are pretty much the same every time. <laughs> There's only a few things to really embellish and, and uh, remind you of, remind us of. But what we're finding in this very simple practice of just staying is that not only is it difficult to do with our puppy dog minds, but it can be kind of daunting, painful, doubtful. There can be times where uh, there's parts of ourselves that are unhidden that we'd rather stayed in the shadows. Maybe there's parts of ourselves that we find to be um, too big, too shiny, uh, too much personality to fit within the confines of a Dharma hall. Maybe we start to unveil past hurts, Sorrow, depressions, fears. And these, all of these things fit within this context of being with what is, whatever our experience is. Nothing's excluded. And so in these times when maybe the practice is a little more difficult, or maybe life is just feeling difficult, there can be this great place of refuge in this practice. And this is offered through uh, Buddhism as the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So there's a chant that is chanted all over the world, and it's in homage to these refuges. And I'd like us to chant them together, and some of you probably know this. If you've been on long retreat, which was one of the reasons I asked, just to see how many voices might be familiar with this and can chant along. And those of you who don't know this chant, it's very repetitive, (laughs) so I'll teach it to you. And uh, if you feel comfortable, you can chant along. Um, It's not... I'm going to explain this chant. 
in the talk, but I thought I'd introduce it first. So if these are new to you, these refuges are new to you, you have a sense of some of the um, more traditional uh, expressions of these, of the refuges. So we'll start uh, with the uh, Namo Tassa, Bhagavata, Arahato, Sama, Sambuddhasa. And what this line, this line is repeated three times, and it means homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. So they're talking about the Buddha, and they're talking about the historical Buddha, the one that uh, was on this path before there was actually a path, the one that woke up on his own. Now we have instructions, <laughs> but he uh, did it on his own so that we could do this uh, with more of a roadmap. And so we say thank you to him. And uh, not to place him on a pedestal, but simply to acknowledge the lineage of where these practices are coming from and uh, to feel a sense of gratitude for that. So let's start with that. So if you know it, you can say, a lo- say it along with me. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa. And then from there, we begin to uh, chant the refuges, uh, which begin by saying, I go to the Buddha for refuge. I go to the Dhamma, the Dharma, for refuge. I go to the Sangha for refuge. And then we go a second time to the Buddha for refuge. I go a second time to the Dharma for refuge. I go a second time to the Sangha for refuge. And then once more I go to the Buddha a third time for refuge. And then a third time to the Dharma, a third time to the Sangha. And so to me, I'm not sure what the historical... Um, purpose of going three times or reciting this three times. But for me, it's very uh, symbolic uh, in my experience of how many times I'm having to, I've had to go back and remind myself that there is this type of support, that there is this refuge. And so we can say this together as well. And it goes like this. And again, it's very, very repetitive uh, Dhamam Saranam Gachami Or I'm sorry, Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhamam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Dutyampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami 
Dutiampi Sangam Sarnam Gachami Tatiampi Budam Sarnam Gachami Tatiampi Damam Sarnam Gachami Tatiampi Sangam Sarnam Gachami this is really beautiful uh, homage, a chant that is done all over the world in all these different traditions of Buddhism. Uh, and it's also part of the ceremony of going forth. If you're going to take robes, be part of uh, the monastic order. Uh, so this is a very uh, sacred and um, beautiful expression I think, of what is available in this practice. Because we come here, we sit down, and we're quiet, and we're in kind of our own little bubble. (laughs) Even though there's a lot going on there, I'm sure. (laughs) There's not always this sense of the larger context or container that is here, always, holding uh, your practice in our practice. And so I love that champ, and I'm glad to share it with you. If we have time, maybe we'll end with it. And at that point, this might have more meaning for you also, because I'm now going to go through and talk about each of these refuges. So the first refuge, uh, the Buddha. The historical Buddha... Uh, was a man, not seen as a god, uh, but just simply a man who did something that wasn't so simple, did something that was quite extraordinary, and that was to fully awaken, uh, to be able to see the truth, the true dharma. And he did this on his own, And he did this uh, without the intention, actually, of teaching it. So this was really for his own uh, freedom. And what he did was so extraordinary and, in fact, uh, so noticeable, his change, his transformation, that after he awakened as he was walking down the road and uh, met the first person after, after this enlightenment, uh, the person came up to him and, and said, Who, what are you? you know, are you a, a, a deva, a god? Uh, what's with you? <laughs> You're shiny. <laughs> That's kind of how I imagine. He was just glowing, and there was something about him that was really different and caught this man's attention. And the Buddha said, No, no, I'm not a god. I'm... I'm awake. And so the man walked off, and uh, um, that was really the first acknowledgement, I think, of, of the Buddha's attainment. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha, though, um, for some of us, I think there's something really connecting or... Uh, 
a sense of devotion to the actual physical Buddha. But he's not here. (laughs) He did die. And uh, so when we are uh, feeling that devotion, I think what we are feeling connected to is the idea of this Buddha, of this man. And I think that can be really powerful, a very powerful support. Um, Personally, I find that refuge in the Buddha, for me and I think for a lot of people, and you can kind of check to see what seems true for you, but I find that um, the fact that he was able to awaken is what I take refuge in. The fact that what he did was a human capacity, not a godlike quality, but a human capacity that is in within each of us. And so when I'm taking refuge in the Buddha, in a way, in that way, I'm taking refuge in my own capacity and in your own capacity. He was someone that uh, awoken and was not so sure that this could be taught. He was actually, uh, in the very beginning, not sure he would be able to teach this to others that people wouldn't understand. And then over time was convinced that this was not true, that there were some people, as he said, that with just a little bit of sand in their eyes, meaning that that delusion or that veil of delusion wasn't as thick as he originally thought it might be, and that maybe there would be a way to teach this practice and to begin to share this lineage. And so he did. And so here we are, almost 26, 2,500 years later. That's pretty amazing. So the ripple effect of uh, this one person is still being practiced and being felt today. So taking refuge in that, just the very power of one person's um, intention and action to share these practices. Sometimes I think taking refuge in the Buddha can feel like a stretch for some. Uh, There's a lot of religious wounding in this country. (laughs) And if this is true for you and the idea of the physical Buddha or um, the statues of the Buddha, that type of devotion, if if it kind of irks you in some way that speaks back to um, religious uh, wounding or memories of um, a past that you just don't really want to bring into your new practice. I guess I'll be more specific. I was, I was raised Catholic, and uh, 
I remember when I first got into this practice that it was really important to me that he was just a man and not a God-like creature. Um, And so for some of us, that whole idea can be a bit of a turnoff. And if that's true for you, just to explore, maybe there's different ways of thinking about it uh, that will feel right to you, or maybe not. I think that one of the nice things of there being three refuges and not just one is that we can find ways to relate to whichever in the moment is feeling the most supportive. And so if the refuge in the Buddha is not really um, working for you, then turning towards the actual... uh, practice or the 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 truth that is coming that this practice is unveiling could maybe be a refuge for you so refuge in the dharma the dharma meaning the truth of how things are to me is like those trees that were sheltering me from the storm when I was a little girl. Um, I find the very fact that um, there's a way to experience the truth of how things are and just be part of that without needing to do anything, not needing to change anything. The fact that that truth is here in every moment to wake up to that there really is no need for special circumstance to be in touch with that truth. Of course, it's not easy (laughs) all the time. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be here. (laughs) We have to practice. But the fact that that is a possibility, to me, is very inspiring. When I really think about it, just the the pure possibility, I find that my heart just opens. It relaxes. The fact that there is a path, uh, a roadmap, um, is very comforting to me. Not to cling to it as the only way to freedom from delusion, hatred, greed, but that it is available, an available way. And so the Buddha offered the Four Noble Truths. And refuge in the Dharma is really taking refuge in these Four Noble Truths. The first one being that there is suffering. And that there is a cause to this suffering. So not only... Is there this acknowledgement that, you know, there's, there's suffering in this world, there's suffering in our experiences, but that there's a cause to this suffering, and that this cause is due to our own habit of not seeing clearly and wanting things to be different than they actually are. To me, that's really great news, <laughs> because... Uh, there's something we can do about that. 
It's not there's suffering and that's just tough. <laughs> it's suffering. There's a cause and there's, there's a reason for this suffering. And then here's this path, this eightfold path, a roadmap to relieving that suffering, to uh, cooling the, the burn of that suffering the rub of that dukkha. And so for me, it's just like those trees. It's this shelter, this place that I can go to and rest. Even though it's not always pleasant, even though it's saying, yeah, that means that you have to uh, look at this suffering, know this suffering. To me, that's become actually... um, a place of refuge, a place for my heart to continue to be pushed to its edges, but also to open. Uh, There's things that I've experienced in the last nine years of this practice that I don't know what I would have done without practice. I'm not sure I would have been able to get through it as gracefully or as skillfully as I would have without it. Because I know that the discomfort, the stress, the dukkha is, is there and will be there. But I also know that there's something bigger than just my own neuroses uh, that can hold it and handle it. That's something I can settle into, even in the grips of intense fear or doubt or depression, anxiety. There's still something that's bigger than all of that that can hold it, can be with it, can stay with it. And to me, that is just, it is the cool water to the fire of dukkha. It's a relief. So then there's the refuge of sangha. And sangha can be defined in a few different ways, but classically it's referring to the monastic order. Uh, You could say the lineage holders of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. So those who have devoted their lives to this practice, to these refuges. And now in the West, uh, especially, uh, this word is used in many different ways. So we have a very a, uh, thriving lay community which is obviously demonstrated here. And so we consider this our sangha, a group of people that are in some way committed to freedom, to waking up, a group of people who understand um, why you're here. a group of people that you can 
confide in, talk to, challenge. And it's not that taking refuge in Sangha means that this is a group of people that are going to do the right thing every time. Our Sanghas are always flawed because they're made up of people and we're, we're all very human, even within the Sangha communities, even within the monastic communities. It's all uh, still people under those robes. And so there's constantly friction, dukkha, people rubbing up against each other's personalities, people's wants and needs. And so I'm sure maybe you've experienced that even here or in another Sangha community. But it's within these communities and in these um, containers of awakening that we can learn from each other and actually use the Dharma to talk with each other, uh, communicate with each other, be wise in our actions with each other. It's a way to bring this practice off the cushion um, and develop together. One of my teachers, Am Tupton Rinpoche, who has a sangha in uh, Point Richmond. I actually wasn't here for this, and so it's, I'm telling it to you secondhand. Uh, but I was told, well, I've seen that there's a, a family there that brings their kids, or there's a couple families that bring their kids. And one of the boys, uh, probably... I would say six or seven years old, was running around and giggling and couldn't sit still. You know, he's seven years old. And he's kind of weaving in and out of everybody sitting in the hall. And I know that if I was there, I'd be thinking, what (laughs) is going on? You know, control your child. (laughs) And Rinpoche leaned forward to the little boy at some point within... Uh, this, this sitting and said, I'm so glad you're here. And you can run around and make as much noise as you want. <laughs> and of course, the boy and the parents were thrilled. And I imagine at that point, there was an ease with the community as well, just to hear the permission of, oh yeah, and that's welcome here too. That little boy running around, being a distraction, is absolutely welcome in this community, in this sangha. And though we don't have that here right now, we're still human, <laughs> doing our human things. And, uh, and all of that's welcome here. All of that can be held here in a sangha. All of those personalities and quirks and annoyances. We're not here because we're all perfect human beings. We're here because we're not. (laughs) And so there can be real refuge in that, a real ease of being able to be within community and to be authentic, to be what's real, what's true, to be our own expression of dharma, 
And so we do that in a way, of course, that's polite. We come into the hall and we get quieter and we take our shoes off and we set the pillows up just so and we're not on our cell phone in the middle of a sit. Because we also feel the connection with each other, the the importance of what we're doing here and the need to support each other here. So there's that piece too that we all come to here come here with basically the same intention and in that we're all here together supporting each other in that intention. I don't know if, if this is true for any of you, but I know that when I sit with Sangha, it's a lot easier. It's a lot there's something more settling about it. I'm more motivated to do it, to sit the whole time without peeking. <laughs> And maybe sitting a little stiller, too, just for the sake of the people around me. And so that's really um, just an interesting reflection on the importance of community and how we all support each other in that. And maybe you don't know everybody here, but it doesn't really matter, does it? We identify with each other's intention And we identify that that's something that's precious to us. And therefore, everyone else's intention is very precious to us too. And that's something really beautifully shared within a Dharma community. And you can see it. I'm talking about it. and I see all these little smiles (laughs) coming on people's faces because you feel it. It feels good. There's so much within our days that does not feel connected, does not feel supported. Maybe we feel like we live double lives sometimes. And yet here we can come in, we don't even have to say hello to anyone. And we can just sit down and be. We can stay. And that's really a special thing and something that can be taken as a refuge. So I'm just realizing the time. And we won't get time to chant the refuge again, but this is something you can find online if it's something you'd like to make part of your practice. Uh, It can be a beautiful way to begin a sitting or end a sitting, or begin or end a day just taking refuge, reminding ourselves of these refuges. I'd like to open it up if there's one or two questions. I think we have time for just a couple. Um, There's a microphone here that would be really helpful if you spoke into the mic so that everyone can hear and it's being recorded. Any comments or questions? Do you have... Oh. I thought you were just ready to go. <laughs> okay. Oh. Okay. Would you like to chant the refuges? Yeah? Why don't we do that then, since there are no questions or comments? We can do that and end in that way. So you can just kind of fudge your way through it if this is new to you. <laughs> That's just fine. And we'll just go slow so that 
maybe the majority of you can follow along. And traditionally when we do this, we actually take our hands up to our heart. And in the Hindi culture, this mudra is really an acknowledgement of uh, the soul in me greeting the soul in you. And we can think of it in that way as we greet and take homage in these refuges. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddham Sarnam Gachami Dhamam Sarnam Gachami Sangham Sarnam Gachami Dutiampi Buddham Sarnam Gachami Dutiampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Dutiampi Sangham Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiampi Dhammam Sarnam Gachami Tatiampi Sangham Sarnam Gachami Thank you.